Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Today we are back on air with a special year-end edition of the show, where we're going to be taking a look at not just the last seven days, but all of 2016. The good, the bad, the Trumpy. We're going to do our best to break down a year's worth of headlines for you right here, right now. Luckily, I'm not going to be alone in all this. We have with me in studio here today, as always, Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Gavin, glad to see 2016 go. Apparently it's going to be longer. Uh, a second. Uh-huh. So we got to endure for an extra second, I yeah, guess. Yeah, a bit annoyed about that. All righty. Uh, so Gavin, annoyed as always. That's a good start. Also joining us today, we have in studio Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Hello, Ross. Good evening. And also with us, uh, Brian Hugh of the New Bloom Magazine. Good evening. And uh, we're happy to welcome onto the show for the first time as a commentator, Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners, who is also a contributor to the South China Morning Post for Taiwan News Issues. Uh, Michael, good to have you on the show. Good to be here, Keith. So here's how this is going to work. Each of us came to the show today with a couple of stories we think bear some reflection. Uh, These stories aren't necessarily the most important for 2016 or the biggest headlines. Some of them are. But the, the, the real bottom line here is that these are stories that are worth keeping in mind as we slide into 2017. Stories with some staying power, stories with some importance. Uh, We want to get to as much as we can, so we're actually going to skip the news of the latest week. That means we are not going to be talking about the passage of legislation to legalize same-sex marriage through committee. That made that into the news earlier this week. Uh, We're also not not going to talk about the planned renaming of Japan's representative office in Taiwan from the Interchange Association Japan to the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association. Uh, Turns out that new name has one too many Taiwans in it for China's taste, but we're not going to talk about that one either. And we'll also not be talking about those Nazi uniform-wearing, cosplaying high school students in Shinju. Wait, Gavin, are we seriously not going to be talking about Nazi students in Shinju? I have nothing to say about that topic at all. Gavin has nothing to say, but he does have a gesture, which I'm not going to repeat to our listeners. So we'll just have to leave that story there as well, unfortunately, although it has gotten a lot of international attention. Nevertheless, we are going to move on to our top stories for 2016, and let's get on to our first story. Uh, The first one that we're going to be covering is the most obvious pick. January's presidential and legislative election that saw Tsai Ing-wen and her DPP sweep to an historic victory uh, and Taiwan achieve its third peaceful democratic transition of power. Uh, Michael, this was actually your pick. I mean, it was kind of everybody's pick, but you were the one who picked it the most persuasively. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your thinking on why uh, this election in particular is going to have longstanding consequences for Taiwan. Well, going into the election, the only real question uh, was it was pretty clear that Tsai Ing-wen was going to win, but it was unclear whether or not the DPP was going to be able to achieve a majority in the legislature, or if it did, how big of a majority. Um, But those questions were answered when the election results came out, and as you said, it was a historic result. I think there are a few factors behind Tsai Ing-wen's election and the majority DPP victory. Uh, The first one was uh, deep underlying dissatisfaction with Taiwan's economy. The second was the previous administration's policies toward China. Many people in Taiwan, especially young people, felt that uh, Taiwan was tilting too close to China. And third was a resurgence of what are known in Taiwan as the social justice movements, uh, especially young people who are concerned with uh, social issues. So those are the factors that brought her to power. So what does it mean for Taiwan? Well, uh, domestically, I think that it's important to keep in mind that Tsai is fundamentally a moderate and pragmatic leader, uh, as can be seen by her attitude towards some more controversial issues like gay marriage and also the Labor Standards Act amendments. Uh, Internationally, uh, the significance for Taiwan is that Taiwan has now clearly tilted away from China and has tilted toward Japan and the United States. Hmm. All right. So some far-reaching consequences. Uh, Of course, we've seen this year uh, one of those consequences being strained ties between 
uh, Taiwan and China. So that's uh, one of one of the consequences there. Uh, Ross, is there anything that you'd add to that? Well, I, I think the key thing now that we're at the end of the year and, and size government has been in office for over six months is you know, what have they achieved and what's the outlook for them in, in 2017? So Michael identified things like the economy. Well, unfortunately, economic growth is going to be fairly meager this year. The outlook for most major investment banks and think tanks for 2017 for Taiwan's economy is also slower growth than some of the other regional economies here in, in Asia. Uh, and, you know, relations with China have worsened. So if this is what uh, the voters wanted, you know, they, they've kind of gotten what they deserve in the sense that Taiwan has um, moved away from the accommodations that the Ma and Zhou government had reached with China. And the social justice issues, uh, I would argue that Tsai hasn't shown enough leadership on some of these issues, such as uh, uh, LGBT rights and gay marriage, right? So she, as Michael said, she her party controls a large majority in the legislative union. So if there's any of these issues that uh, are important to her and her party, she could easily get them passed. So I, I don't see why we should let these issues you know, be prolonged in, in public debate uh, when a, a very large legislative majority could get, just get it done if she would stand up and show leadership on the issues. Hmm. All right. So some stuff there that we're not seeing, obviously, as well. And uh, Brian, how about your thoughts? Um, I mean, something I emphasize is the historic nature of this election. It's the first time the DPP has controlled both the presidency and the legislature. It's the first time, you know, a non-KMT force has controlled both the presidency and the legislature at the same time. Um, so, you know, the ball is really in the DPP's court. But what we're seeing now is, you know, factors in both actually the pan-green and the pan-blue camps. Um, as was mentioned, with the rise of social movements, now there's, you know, greater antagonism between the DPP within the legislature or in the presidency and new parties that have emerged, such as the New Power Party, which sort of replaced the Taiwan Solidarity Union within mm-hmm. legislature. Um, also, you know, the, the crisis of the pan-blue camp continues because, you know, the KMT is still trying to resolve the question of, you know, how exactly pro-China it should be. Um, Leadership now has fallen to Hong Xiuzhu, who is, you know, the presidential candidate of the uh, of the KMT at one point during elections. And, you know, well, we'll see how her leadership works out. So far, it doesn't look like the KMT is making a comeback. Mm. So far, indeed. I guess that's what we're left with. Uh, Gavin, you're... You wanna, no? Okay. So that is what we are left with for now. I think that that is a good place to start because it sets the stage for a lot of other topics, but there's no point in digging into uh, much more deeply into the election because basically it just touches on everything else that we're going to be discussing today. So moving on. Of course, one of the big campaign promises of Tsai Ing-wen was to lead a program of transitional justice under her presidency. Uh, And over the course of 2016, we found out what exactly that was going to mean. Gavin, this was your pick. What did that mean? It meant that the DPP was going to go after KMT assets, illegal party assets that the DPP claimed that the KMT stole from the state when it came here in 1949. It also planned to run yet another, yet another, I say yet another, and how many times do I have to say yet another for this one? Another probe into the February 28th incident, of course, where thousands of people were killed by nationalist Chinese troops in 1947. And the other part, another part of the transitional justice was to cover the martial law period, of course, which ran from 1949 until 1987. There was also an apology to the island's aboriginal Originals as part of this transitional justice. Mm-hmm. So we can begin at three places there. Let's begin with the look at the February 28th incident and the review of the period of martial law. Nothing was really new here. It was yet another presidential body came along and basically said, we're going to look into these incidents and review them to find out who was held responsible. Because, of course, no one has been held responsible for either of these things, let alone being they dead or alive. And, of course, there's naysayers to this argument said probably nothing will be done about it and it will continue as ever in these. So whichever, whatever committee comes up with a results of its findings into martial law and the February 28th incident, like unlikely anything that hasn't already been done, vis-a-vis payments to families who suffered, etc., will likely not be done again. So just... Another committee makes another another decision. Another committee makes another decision about something the committees have already made decisions about before under previous governments. Mm -hmm. The second one, of course, will go to the Aboriginal apology. On um, signing when apologised to the Aboriginal communities here on August the first of this year, it was seen as a belated gesture, basically, similar to what other countries have done, like Australia. 
where the head of state there, the Prime Minister, apologised to Australia's Indigenous people. Um, Tsai Ing-wen apologised to the island's Indigenous peoples for the sufferings they had been put through, basically under the Dutch, the Spanish, the Chinese, the Japanese and the KMT. Which is all good and well and proper, I guess, but of course certain people came out and said she didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. Quite what she would have done more apart from apologise is open to question, but there were naysayers who said she didn't go far enough. Well, anything concrete rather than just, you know, well, simple a speech, words, basically trying to said, solve a pr- problem with a speech. It's only words, they argued, yes. Mm-hmm. And finally, we have the the rather tricky question of the ill-gotten party assets settlement committee, which was set up as part of Tying Wen's transitional justice call, and the committee was tasked with probing illegally gotten gains by the KMT, as in land, buildings, and businesses. Mm-hmm. This hasn't really gone well at all. Basically, the committee got set up to much great fanfare with a rather famous lawyer chap called Wellington Goo heading it. Unfortunately, every time they tried to do anything, it got stymied by the KMT, who jumped up and down and said this is political persecution. And they also took them to court. And I believe you caught up with Jason Hu earlier this week, who mentioned something about what's quite wrong with this transitional justice committee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, the... KMT is, as you said, not pleased about the ill-gotten party asset settlement committee. Uh, And they held a press conference to make that view uh, abundantly clear to the international press. So uh, I happened to be there earlier this week. And as you said, the man of the hour was KMT Vice Chairman Jason Hu. Uh, He made an interesting point. He actually uh, made it clear that he is open to some form of investigation. Here's what he had to say about that. Although regrettable, but there was a time when the party and state are considered a unity, one body. There was a time, which may not be right. Uh, the KMT did a lot of things under that type of thinking, which, regrettably admitting, may not, considered, may not be considered correct today. And we're trying to remediate it. We're doing everything possible. But all we are saying is that you should do it Properly, legally, and constitutionally. He believes the administration's approach so far has been no good. And I mean, I I know that you said that it's been caught up in court and all that, but it's had real consequences for the KMT. Of course, a lot of their assets have been frozen. They've had trouble paying their staff. So despite the fact that it's been caught up in court, it has already uh, had real consequences for the KMT. And Jason basically was making the case that the way that the DPP is dealing with this situation is just too partisan. Uh, There's no legislative. You're on oversight. And he said that a better way to deal with uh, this question of the legitimacy of assets would be to just leave it to Taiwan's courts. Uh, Again, here's Jason Hu making that case. The government system can deal with it. No need to set up a different uh, organization or even to legislate a special code for it. Even if the majority of the people want a government to do something, the government has to do it properly, legally, and constitutionally. That's all we said. All right. So legally, properly and constitutionally is the phrase of the day, I suppose. That was the refrain we heard over and over and over again that day. Uh, Michael, I'm curious. So I guess we heard somewhat of a pessimistic view from Gavin right here about the consequences for transitional justice. Uh, is, is, that, is that about what you see here or do, do you see more reason to celebrate? Well, I think that the transitional justice issues are primarily Tsai Ing-wen paying lip service to the social justice movements. The apology to the aboriginals is symbolically important. Apologies are hard to come by in East Asian society. But as Gavin pointed out, many aboriginals in Taiwan are indigenous groups are unhappy with the lack of concrete action. The only one of these which is really significant is the ill-gotten assets committee. There, under the name of transitional justice, The DPP is arguably trying to eliminate the KMT as a significant political force from the from the Taiwan political landscape. Well, the KMT were certainly arguing that at their press conference earlier this week. It's an existential threat to the Mm -hmm. KMT. 
fortunately for the KMT, they should be able to tie this up in the courts for years because whenever a state tries to seize uh, assets and property from a private political party such as the KMT, there are significant constitutional legal issues raised. Mm -hmm. So the KMT should be all right for a while. But the DPP here is really going after the KMT under the guise of transitional justice. And I would argue that this serves the DPP's, you might say, historical mission, which really is the DPP is a, a large party that contains many different factions that in probably in another country would be different political parties altogether. There's a left wing. There are people. There are business people in the DPP. So once the DPP has managed to eliminate the KMT from the political landscape, we will see a reconfiguration of Taiwan's political scene. The DPP will probably break into left and right wing branches and we'll see a much more normal politics in the future. Hmm. All right. So getting back to some of the points that uh, Jason Hu was making, uh, Ross, I'm curious for your perspective. I mean, it, he, he, he's basically saying we are OK with some version of looking into illegitimate ass, uh, assets. Perhaps some of our assets are illegitimate and you know should be dealt with. Uh, he just objects to the way that the DPP has dealt with it. Do you think that there was a clean way to look into this assets issue? Well, legitimate or illegitimate is the key word in this discussion. So the, the KMT is arguing that the process is illegitimate. And, and the fact is they've had some success in the courts where the courts have ruled that parts of this process are uh, extra constitutional. Mm-hmm. The, the investigation committee has very broad powers to investigate and, and to uh, seek records. And it kind of runs outside of a large body of existing laws on things like data privacy, for example. Uh, so there, there are legitimate questions. Uh, Ultimately, the KMT will survive, I think. I, I don't see this as an existential threat. And it's nothing compared to warlords, communists, Japanese. <laughs> they've been through a lot this party. Yes, yes, they have. And they've lasted over 100 years. Uh, but ultimately, their success will, will be based on having good leaders and candidates and policies that appeal to the electorate, which you know, from our earlier discussion, they clearly didn't have in 2016. And, and they still have such internal chaos with picking their leaders and candidates um, based on recent events. Uh, you know, it's hard to see them winning at the, at the, at the voting uh, booth uh, in the near term. But uh, they are correct that the process uh, is faulty. And that's why they've been winning in the courts. Mm. All right. Uh, very quickly, before we move on, Brian, toss in your thoughts. Um, yeah, I also agree that, you know, transitional justice for indigenous or victims of the white terror is mostly lip service. Actually, a lot of things that, you know, social movement group has called attention to is that these committees set up to investigate these things do not have a lot of authority and they do not meet very often. And they actually call attention to the fact that the committee to investigate KMT party assets is much more authority compared to these other groups, despite all this being under the mantle of transitional justice. Um, I also think the KMT will survive. I mean, I think that though the KMT is internally divided on the issue of whether to just dump the party assets or try to retain them, because, you know, this is a question for its legitimacy. I think the KMT will survive because the DPP doesn't actually want to push too hard, because the question is, you know, this whole question of the peaceful democratic transition. The DPP also doesn't want to have the perception that it is political persecuting the KMT. Um, so I don't think it will try to eradicate the party from existence totally. Hmm. But we'll see as the part has as to how the KMT moves going forward. I mean, this is also apart from the fact possibly a fraction of the DPP, the KMT could also fracture as a result of this. Hmm. All right. So we're going to leave that story there for now. Obviously, a lot more questions to be wrapped up. But moving on to another one with consequences from the campaign. Of course, President Tsai is hoping to see Taiwan become less dependent on China. And the way that she has chosen to do that is to turn south, Ross. Yeah, we, we've seen uh, several changes in this policy, though, in, in the six plus months that the government has been in office. So that policy, the, just to put a name to it, is the southbound policy. No, leadership has, has changed. The location of the office within the government structure has changed. And, and for most of the last six months, President Tsai and her team have been discussing the policy as, as more of a manifestation of Taiwan's soft power. So it was going to focus on educational and, and personal, cultural kind of exchanges uh, and promoting that between Taiwan and, and Southeast Asia. But in recent weeks, President Tsai has discussed the policy as a way to encourage Taiwanese businesses to invest in Southeast Asia, which uh, I think is an interesting 
issue given that uh, investment in Southeast Asia by Taiwanese companies is not going to address the social justice, youth uh, underemployment, low salary issues that prompted so much of the social justice movements that we've been talking about on this program. So it kind of remains to be seen where the policy is going to go. But there's a, a very important element here is what is the level of interest from the governments in Southeast Asia. And the reality is many of them are moving closer in their policy outlook, whether it's political, economic, security, to China. And their appetite for closer relations with Taiwan, especially in the current environment of deteriorating cross-straits relations, is going to be limited. So it's very difficult to see where uh, any government in Southeast Asia would want to sign, a, for example, a free trade agreement with Taiwan. Right. So uh, certainly having some issues, that southbound policy. And just to remind our listeners, once again, this is a policy that's supposed to up a number of ties, as Ross just mentioned, to uh, countries to the south and to the west. Basically, countries that aren't China is uh, what the Tsai Ing-wen government is getting at here. Michael, uh, what, what have you seen in this policy over the last year that's caught your attention? Well, I think that the policy really is uh, more directed at uh, uh, Taiwan's um, domestic scene. As Ross pointed out, there probably isn't that much interest in Southeast Asia uh, for closer ties with Taiwan. I think the most important thing about the southbound policy is what it says about President Tsai Ing-wen. The southbound policy fundamentally, is a leftover policy from the Lee Dung-Kui era back in the 1990s. It wasn't very successful then. I doubt it will be successful now. The The point, though, is that Tsai Ing-wen, who got her political start under Lee Dung-Kui, is simply recycling ideas from that era. And that's what the South Pound policy is. It's an old idea that's been brought back on the stage. That's why they call it the new Southbound policy. So yeah. no, get, get, didn't get confused with the old one. You didn't. You didn't see the the, the word new in there. It, that's that's how you know it's new is because it says new there. Anyway, you gotta you gotta look at the fine print. All right. Well, we're gonna leave that one and actually take a break from politics entirely and turn our attention instead to the world of consumer fads, which in Taiwan, well, you know, maybe the case could be made actually matter a little bit more than even politics. We did, of course, see the whole country lurch to a screeching stop when Pokemon Go exploded on the scene this summer, Gavin. Yeah, Pokemon Go. As you can see, I'm really into Pokemon Go. Woo, woo, woo. Oh, come on. That's why we got Ross in, because Ross is, of course, the Pokemon Go specialist. And as Ross will inform us, Pokemon Go broke onto the scene here in Taiwan on August the 6th, and everybody, bar me, was downloading it onto their smart gadgets. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were playing it as well, which was quite ironic. And Taiwan made world news. Taiwan made the tabloids globally yet again. The zombie of, hordes of Pokemon of Go thousands players. Thousands of people who were playing Pokemon Go descended on a park in Taipei's Beitou district. One of the headlines, Rare Pokemon Sparks Massive Stampede in Taiwan, screamed the Huffington Post mm-hmm. above the video there. Mm-hmm. Yes, there you go. They, so it was, a, it was a year of a lot of Taiwan headlines. It was a year, a lot of daft Taiwan headlines abroad. We had the Nazis, of course, this week, and we had Pokemon Go in the middle of the year. No such thing as bad publicity. Well, I can tell you, apparently, they, they, were, they, they, they ascended on Beitou, these Pokemon Go users, and then they became a global hit, because apparently they were trying to catch a Snorlax. Apparently that's... Ross, Ross is that important? Ross, we need Ross. What is a Snorlax, Ross? Well, the, he's, he's shy. The key, he's the key, not to know. The key thing here is uh, the level of popularity that was attached to this game uh, globally and obviously here in Taiwan. Uh, but uh, I would say that the, something we should keep in mind is that this came from Japan. And what does it say about Taiwan's level of creativity that Taiwanese people, you know, once again, as we've seen before, people in Taiwan have gotten very excited over uh, a cultural import from Japan. Uh, despite uh, our hopes that Taiwan's own companies, especially in IT and create, creative industries, could generate their own globally popular kinds of things, right? And Korea is also is very good at exporting their culture. Uh, it would be good if we could see something from Taiwan get this kind of global attention rather than Korea and Japan always taking this space. Yeah, Brian, I think uh, I think Ross makes a good point there. Uh, were you swept up by the Pokemon craze? Um, I thought it was, you know, fun to watch. It's a new social phenomenon. It is, you know, it does say something about the advancement of technology, but, you know, on the first day I also saw a man riding a Segway scooter in through Taipei, you know, playing Pokemon Go. 
And, you know, you hear these things about such as reports of, you know, people having sore fingers and going to hospitals because they've been playing too much. So, you know, I wonder about Taiwanese society. And people know? say that, you know, folks in Taiwan are, don't have perseverance. Come on. Um, perseverance right there. That's true. But, you know, we also say, you know, that, you know, kids are always just playing their, with their cell phones on the subway. You know, Ditozu, the uh, bent head tribe. The bent head tribe, yeah. <laughs> and there was a lot of perseverance with Pokemon Go because I believe some 500 tickets were issued. Mm. In the first weekend, it got released here by the police who were kept busy by errant motorcyclists, cyclists and car drivers who decided to play Pokemon Go on the go. Yeah. Which is all a bit dangerous, really. Apparently so. I don't know. I haven't heard of any Pokemon Go related deaths as far as I know. So maybe we got off light. It's kind of interesting, though. There is some kind of weird fad that sparks up every summer. I think two years ago, it was the giant rubber duck. Uh, Last year, it was the bent mailboxes, which was made in Taiwan, so we can take credit for that. Uh, And then this year, it was Pokemon Go. Do you guys have any predictions about what the the craze is going to be next year? Any thoughts? I know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. But, you know, it'll just be something that... that, That's, you know, how Taiwan gets international recognition, maybe. (laughs) Most likely, it's going to be something related to Donald Trump. We already have one. I don't know if you were here when we talked about this, but there is actually a pheasant in, I think it's Elan, a park in Elan, that has a little Trump frill on the back, and uh, folks are flocking to it for its Donald Trump resemblance. So maybe that'll pick up even more steam by summer. We'll have to wait and see. All right, we're going to cut the Pokemon talk right there and get back to work, uh, because work was actually a big part of the news this year. As President Tsai's push to institute a 40-hour work week pitched president against people, people against president, and industry against just about everybody, Brian. Yeah, so I mean, these are some of the most protested issues of the past year. Um, I mean, Taiwan already works some of the longest hours in the world, having, you know, Taiwanese workers working over like 2,100 hours. That's like the fourth longest working hours in the world. Um, So the reforms come from a switch to a 48-hour work week to a 40-hour work week as a result of which there were cuts to seven public holidays. Um, also, you know, though now there's one set day off for workers per week, but one flexible rest day, quote-unquote, in which workers can still be made to work. Um, this was something that was contested by labor groups going up to 2016 presidential elections. There was an attempt to invade the Ministry of Labor. Um, there was, you know, a demonstration in January with smoke bombs being thrown at the presidential residence. Um, I expected that the DPP would kind of compromise on this issue, even though at that point it hadn't been elected into office. I think um, that they. I think that they made a, a pledge to keep those seven holidays that were eventually cut. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So there was a there was a hunger strike, and by a, a group called Workers Struggle, which comes out of you know Autumn Struggle, which is one of the oldest labor demonstrations in Taiwan. Um, that led to the Thai administration kind of backing down from its original plans because you know the time when administration really does want to act as though it is on the side of social justice groups and you know social movements. Um, but then after meeting with business leaders, um, you know large seven large business leaders who threatened to kind of suspend any business negotiations and, you know, kind of boycott the Thai administration if it went through with this. The Thai administration reversed again. So, you know, it managed to kind of offend labor by, you know, flopping and also just, you know, also it offended many companies who had actually, you know, done some changes in preparation for these labor reforms. So mm. it, just, it just kind of made everyone happy. So pinging and ponging back and forth. That's right. And the thing is, you know, the Thai administration also proved that's really willing to force through these reforms. Um, it passed them through committee, or it, it was sent back through to legislative and through committee with this being declared done under two minutes um, as part of a 17-minute process. This reminded a lot of people of the Sunflower Movement, you know, the black box way in which the CSSTA was just passed without, you know, any due process. Um, so now, you know, the question is, labor groups still are demonstrating. Uh, they have not been victorious um, and, you know, it seems like these things will pass. But even then, you know, the DPP has kind of mishandled that in incorrectly scheduling when the bill will come into effect. It seems like labor groups will continue to demonstrate this. But, you know, the DPP has also kind of indicated that it's now willing to break from social movement groups in going mm. directly against labor. And this is something that, you know, could offend all of Taiwanese society because of the fact that this is like an issue that really is not one interest group, but, you know, just affects affects all all working members of Taiwanese society. Mm. So certainly a lot of anger generated just by the process of how this was passed, uh, how many times decisions were changed. At the same time, though, I mean, like, when you finally look at the text, what's being put into place, I personally, and I think a lot of other workers, are actually better off. I mean, like, my mm-hmm. work week, my rights as a worker are stronger than they were at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. So we can criticize Tsai for maybe not going far enough or maybe bungling the process. But do you think that there's anything to be said for celebrating, you know, a, an inch forward in labor rights? 
Um, I think it's an inch forward, but you know, also we from this we see the kind of worldview of the Thai administration that you know it is it will actually prioritize a small set of business leaders over you know a large amount of people that are protesting against it when push comes to shove. And I have a lot of questions about what that means for the Thai administration going forward. I would look at it a different way. I, I don't see this as prioritizing the views of, of business leaders. I see this as significant government intervention in, in the marketplace, and significantly, uh, you, know, you mentioned yourself. Keith, and I'm glad you have uh, you know, more leisure time to enjoy. But uh, should government be intervening in the services sector to this extent? So, yes, people who are uh, manual labor, blue collar, farms, factories, etc., maybe the protections or, or you know, reduced uh, working hours is something that they deserve. And maybe they're they're in a weakened bargaining position compared to white collar, you know, but someone as talented as as you, Keith, you know, you could take your services elsewhere if ICRT is is giving you a bad deal as far as the working conditions and you know, if the pay or the, the if there's a mismatch between the pay and, and the working hours that are expected of you as a white collar you know, service sector employee, I, I would say that that really should be in the marketplace. I, I just question the necessity of, of this level of intervention with the services sector and white-collar employees. Hmm. All right. Uh, Michael, anything else to toss in? Maybe maybe uh, don't use me as the example for the points that you're going to be making? Well, I think that the Labor Standards Act amendments really show the nature of the Thai administration. Moderate, pragmatic, trying to strike a compromise, possibly unsuccessfully, between business interests and the labor movement, which supported her. We saw this before during the Chen Shui-bian administration, though. The DPP came to power partly with the help of social justice movements, including labor, and then largely turned its back on those movements later. Uh, I think the same thing is happening under the Thai administration. Fundamentally, the DPP and Tsai think that labor don't, doesn't have anywhere else to go. They may be wrong because labor and their supporters may turn to the new power party. Uh, but for now, Tsai Ing-wen is betting that they have nowhere else to go. Yeah, as is Ross's comment about the service sector, of course, one of the stinks that this labour law led to was calls from the train workers union and bus drivers, because there was some concern that some travel um, tra- train services might have to be cut and bus services, long distance bus prices could go up. Mm-hmm. So basically, while you're, while Ross mentioned it affected the service sector more than anyone else, it actually affected the general public as a whole. If you want to get from A to B on a Sunday evening, for example, when the Taiwan Railways Administration might be forced to cut its trains. Well, you could also make the argument that maybe those companies should just hire more workers and suck it up in labor costs. But we're not going to get into a debate about this because we have a lot more stories to get to. We're actually coming up on a break right now. So... Rather than descend into angry chaos over laws that will still be on the books next year and we will still be able to debate then, we are going to head to a break right now. When we return, we have a whole lot more 2016 reminiscing coming your way. 2016 isn't done with us quite yet. And as Gavin mentioned, it's got a couple more seconds in store for us. So uh, one more second. Excuse me. (laughs) One extra second for 2016. So do stay tuned when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, Brian Hugh, and Michael Fahey. Plugging along, of course, we are discussing the top news from 2016, so we're not just looking at the top stories from the last week, but the entire last year. We've already covered a number of them. we got a couple more, so we're just going to keep plugging away. Up next, well, so far we've been uh, neglecting business news, I think, so let's move on to some of that now. One company certainly caused some Uber trouble this year and racked up some Uber fines, all while making some Uber money. Uh, some company. What's the name of that company? Uh, what's, uh, uh, Ross, what am I thinking of? What's the name of that company? Uh, well, we've been talking about apps like Pokemon Go, but there's a very popular uh, taxi ride-hailing app called Uber. Uber! Yes, of course. All right. So they've been in the news this year, of course, uh, at odds with regulators who contend that they are not operating legally under their information and communication license that they've been granted. They are instead operating as a transportation service, uh, and they have gotten fined up the wazoo for continuing to operate despite the fact that the government tells them that they shouldn't be. Well, this is an issue that Uber has faced in, in numerous 
e-commerce markets around the world that Uber says we are a, a communications platform. And in some places, regulators say, no, you're running a taxi business, so you should uh, be regulated as such and you should apply for all the licenses and pay for all the fees and insurance and, and for your for your uh, drivers, et cetera. Uh, and Uber says no. And Uber, uh, in many places, will consider it just a cost of doing business to pay fines, which has been the situation here in Taiwan. In many places around the world, you know, given so many markets where Uber operates, they've been able to reach an agreement with regulators. So there is, they have found common ground. And one of the reasons why they're able to find common ground is it's a good product. The public likes it, and the drivers make money in, in most situations in most places around the world. Otherwise, they wouldn't drive Uber cars. The danger here in Taiwan is passing some kind of special Uber law and you know, passing special laws. Uh, we, we, we'll talk about uh, you know, gay marriage debate and special law for that. We've talked about having special committees for various issues. Uh, I think there's a danger in, in doing that rather than trying to find the common ground that, that Uber has found in markets around the world. We, we don't need a special Taiwan Uber solution, special law. Uh, that, that would be a negative, I think, for other initiatives that the government is pursuing to make Taiwan a more attractive investment destination, especially for IT and, and app and creative industries. So I think we should be concerned about where we're going from here and finding solutions that might sound good for taxi drivers, but ultimately are not good for the marketplace or consumers. And let's just remind our listeners, uh, the issues that we're talking about here uh, would be licensing. Uber does not have licensed drivers, and so that makes it run afoul of uh, regulators. They also currently don't have insurance, and they are also currently not paying taxes in Taiwan. Well, not the bulk of their revenue is not being taxed in Taiwan. So uh, those are, are three issues uh, that regulators would need find st- to find some fix if you were going to accommodate uh, Uber in Taiwan. Uh, Brian, do you think, I mean, some of these, you, you could make the case that these regulations are not serving their purposes, that they're outdated. Uh, you could also make the case that, you know, they were based on real needs in the market and real protections that were needed. Where do you come down on all this? Um, well, I basically see Uber as, you know, the application of the so-called gig economy to, you know, the taxi driving industry. Because, you know, we have around the world a kind of breakdown of traditional employment in which there are stable benefits in favor of, you know, much more tenuous forms of employment. And I think this is an example with regard to some of the things you raise, such as insurance and so forth. Um, I mean, in Taiwan, we have the kind of strange situation in which drivers are being fined extreme amounts. I mean, you know, they've co- some of the amounts they've been fined seem comparable to if they run someone over. That doesn't seem fair. But, you know, at the same time, like, Uber does have to account for these things. The fact that, you know... Taxi drivers in Taiwan are already incredibly overworked. Uh, you know, they don't make a lot, and they owe a lot to their companies. And, you know, Uber might actually just worsen the situation for them. So that's that's the question I have going forward. Mm. All right. Uh, Michael, anything you want to toss in there? I would just add that the government has already passed anti-Uber uh, laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a, a new legislation which significantly ups the fines on Uber. I think uh, max level of 25 million exactly for one infraction. Exactly, it is overwhelmingly popular with consumers who do use it in places like Kaohsiung, Taichung, and Taipei, but. Unfortunately for Uber, they're directly challenging the Taiwanese government and they're directly challenging uh, a large number of voters who are taxi drivers. So I think they're going to have problems going forward. All righty. Well, we're going to leave that Uber problem behind and go to another one. Uh, This is, uh, as all of you have mentioned, certainly a year where social movements collided with high politics in a lot of different ways. Uh, We never saw this more clearly than this long continuing fight to legalize gay marriage uh, that is still continuing and will continue into 2017. Brian, this was one of your picks, so lay it down for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, legalizing gay marriage was one of the campaign promises of the Thai administration. And, you know, as a result of this, you know, Thai was hailed as an icon of Asian progressive values as, you know, Taiwan's first female president who is pro-gay marriage. And polling at that time indicated that the majority of Taiwanese society did support gay marriage. And, you know, Thai made us very much at the front of her campaign with, you know, high-profile campaign ads. But after being elected, Tsai really dropped the matter. She hadn't really talked about it for months and months until, in November, uh, 20,000 anti-marriage equality demonstrators demonstrated from the legislative front that began to allow the DPP to backslide towards civil partnerships rather than marriage equality. Um, this was a charge kind of led by Ke Jieming, the majority speaker of the legislative run. Um, he and other sections of the DPP probably were opposed to gay marriage from the beginning or not so happy with it, but Tsai pushed for it as an attempt to 
to depict her her campaign as being socially progressive. Um, you know, the DPP, there are heavy elements that are very Christian. Um, the Presbyterian Church, which was huge in the DPP, is itself divided on gay marriage. Annette Liu, a former vice president, once claimed that, you know, AIDS was a blight by God against gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, Civil partnership groups would make these kind of anti-marriage equality groups happier because, you know, one of their claims is that this this would disrupt the heterosexual family as the basis of society. Um, these are very much Christian groups. If we just kept it in the, the civic code rather than making a, a legal exception, That's so right. an extra law. By adding an extra law, which would be, you know, quote-unquote, separate but not equal. Mm-hmm. Um, that way it doesn't change text that is gendered within the Constitution So or referring to the family in terms of a man and a woman. Um, you know, these are very fundamentalist groups that are out there. I mean, you know, when you go to these rallies, you see people speaking in tongues and, you know, collapsing and so forth. Um, and so there's a resistance from, you know, the groups that are pro-marriage equality. I mean, previously groups, you know, LGBT groups and so forth, really expected this just to pass very easily, which is why, you know, there weren't actually huge numbers in the beginning. Um, you know, 250,000 were mobilized on December 11th. This outnumbered the fact that groups opposed to gay marriage had 200,000 throughout all of Taiwan. I mean, this 250,000 was just in Taipei. Um, there were also 22 overseas rallies held by Taiwanese students studying abroad. Um, these three actually networks that were developed during the Sunflower Movement. So that, that, that the fact is that now there's a perception that society is very heavily divided on gay marriage. And, you know, maybe polls have changed. Um, because just accepting gay marriage doesn't mean that you will actively push for it either. Um, the Protect the Family Alliance that's been coordinating these protests didn't Probably is it's been calling for a public referendum, which I'm not sure it actually wants to do because it might not win this referendum and it would have to meet high benchmarks to accomplish this. So but you think it might just be a stalling tactic? It might be a stalling tactic, but you know, this has allowed the DPP or elements of the DPP to backslide and the Thai administration has washed its hands of the matter, stating that, you know, it'll respect the opinion of the legislative ren, although it's still in f- support of gay marriage. Mm. And so this is another reversal, of course, of the Thai administration. Um and so, you know, we see further splits between the DPP and social movements or, you know, between the DPP and the New Power Party, which has, you know, been continuous in supporting the bill that will legalize marriage equality, but has faced kind of attack for that. Mm. Um, the party chair, Huang Guochang, currently is facing a recall petition. Um, the irony is that, you know, within the DPP in regards to internal conflict, Tsai kind of used this as a way to really force DPP members to fall in line because this was an issue that she could use to secure a very loyal support base from, you know, LGBTQ voters and their allies. But Tsai has kind of backed down from it or just been way too cautious, and that probably won't work out for her. I mean, it might be another case in which she's kind of offended every party by just <laughs> flip-flopping back and forth. Yeah, we got a couple of those so far. All right, so uh, as Brian has said, I think a lot of folks uh, expected it to— I mean, it really did seem earlier this year to have quite a bit of momentum. It felt like this was the time it could pass relatively easily. Uh, we didn't see that happen. Uh, and, Ross, you've seemed to indicate that you, you agree mm-hmm. that it is a uh, the problem here is largely a lack of political leadership from Tsai Ing-wen. That's correct. So uh, Brian mentioned that uh, the president and the government is indicated will respect the opinion of the legislative you had. The the problem that a lot of uh, people have with that is President Tsai and her team seem to be picking the issues that they want to take leadership on and then abdicating leadership on the other issues. The fact is she is chairman of the party. So uh, it, it is not an acceptable answer to say, well, we, we cannot influence the legislators in the legislative UN. Well, actually, yes, they can because they have a party whip. And even if... And they have those weekly meetings. There you coordination go. meetings. Yeah, but e- even if there are members of the DPP Legislative UN Caucus who object to marriage equality uh, on the basis of their religious beliefs, that, combi- that that is not enough to stop the bill. So there would be enough DPP legislators who will support it, combined with uh, a number of KMT legislators who do support it, combined with the New Power Party, five legislators who support it. This could pass with sufficient leadership, uh, and it could pass with change to the civil code. Uh, as, as a lawyer, I have to be frank and say that a special law, as members of the LGBT community ha- have clearly indicated, is extremely condescending and patronizing. The, the correct way to do it is to change the civil code. Mm. All right. Uh, Michael, anything to add there? Well, I would just make two points about the gay marriage issue. The first one is that uh, there's pretty widespread consensus that some kind of gay marriage bill or domestic partnership act is going to pass. And that would be a first for Asia and put Taiwan on the map, regardless of the specific details of what comes out. The second thing that's extremely interesting about the gay marriage issue is the way that it is has nothing to do with the traditional blue-green split in Taiwan. It is not a partisan issue. There are KMT people who are strongly in favor of the 
revising the civil code to permit gay marriage. There are people in the DPP who seem to be opposed to gay marriage. It's all over the political spectrum. We haven't seen an issue like this which uh, transcends partisan differences since the nuclear power movement of the 1990s. Hmm. Yeah, and perhaps another case, we've hinted at this earlier, that exposes that the political fault lines of Taiwan are just very confused, given that Taiwan's politics are so much organized around cross-strait relations. Uh, You see strange bedfellows and often difficult coalitions to muster. Uh, We're going to move on now, though, to actually one of my picks. Uh, Here's one that's actually really looking ahead to 2017, uh, but it's something a lot of people have been aware of this year and have been trying to prepare for for quite a while now. So we've already seen some of the effects of it this year. Talking about here, the government's plan to move forward uh, with the banning of killing animals at state-run animal shelters by next year. Uh, They're doing this over the strong concerns from animal welfare advocates. Something we've discussed before on the show, but let's uh, lay it out briefly. Currently, here's how it works. Uh, Public shelters are required to take in animals relinquished by their owners or animals that are kind of called in, basically. Oh, there's this wild dog causing some problems. Could you take it in? The shelters are required to do that. No matter how many they have on hand, they have to go get those strays. Uh, Then the government uh, gives public notice in the hopes that somebody comes and adopts this dog. Unfortunately, uh, after 12 days, if nobody adopts the dog, the public shelter has the legal authority to put the dog to sleep, to euthanize it. So what is going to happen in 2017 is that option is going to be taken off the table. Uh, These dogs will not be able to be euthanized. And many cities and counties around Taiwan have said that they are not going to be able to cope with the excessive capacity of dogs in their system, dogs and cats in their system. Uh, And uh, welfare advocates, animal welfare advocates are kind of backing them up, saying that basically you're going to end one problem of, you know, killing animals Uh, and create another problem of severe overcrowding. Uh, The government has responded that they are going to increase the budget to help these local governments and help them sort of deal with the animals to the tune of 500 million NT in 2017. But some animal rights advocates are just not convinced. Uh, I recently spoke to one individual who is not convinced, Lisa Milne. She was a marketing consultant for Mary's Doggies. Uh, And she's warning that basically even now... Even before this ban is put into place, even before we're seeing some of the effects of overcrowding, uh, public shelters are already facing serious issues with not having enough space. And she says this means that the facilities just can't give the animals everything they need. Dogs are not quarantined or cats are not quarantined when they go into the shelters, which means disease. If one dog has parvo or distemper and it's put in with uh, another five, six dogs, if they haven't been vaccinated, or even if they have been vaccinated, if it's only one shot, it won't cover, um, and they can still catch parvo and distemper and die very painfully and very slowly. There's dogs that don't get along with other dogs, so they're kept in a cage that they can hardly stand up and turn around in. And people believe, well, it's still alive. Mm, For me, that's not a life. Uh, To be kept in a cage for the rest of its life, uh, fed in there, going to the bathroom in there, sleeping in there, you know, that, that's its life for the next 10 years. And then you have fighting. You leave six, seven, eight, ten dogs in a, in a small area together without exercise, without stimulation, without um, care. You know, they get hurt, they get grumpy, they start fighting. And so I just feel there's going to be, you know, a lot of unnecessary painful, um, slow deaths of the animals in the shelter um, if things are not done very carefully. She told me that she does support an end to euthanasia in general, uh, but she says Taiwan is not ready now. Uh, And she laid out for me the steps that she wants to see the government take. Uh, She started out that conversation by talking about uh, animal breeders. Uh, Now, basically, uh, companies that are raising animals, breeding them for to sell to owners. This is uh, a long-running concern uh, for many animal welfare advocates. Uh, Basically, from their perspective, if you're buying from a breeder, then you're not adopting a stray, uh, and that doesn't do anything to solve Taiwan's stray problem. So uh, she started off that conversation basically making the case that uh, we should see more regulations on breeders. They're not checked. They're not implemented. You know, raise taxes on people that are breeding animals so that they are 
carefully monitored how many animals they're breeding per year and what's happening to the adult dogs once they're no longer able to breed. That's one part. The other part is to encourage everyone to spay and neuter their pets, not put in fines, because as soon as you start to implement fines, that scares people. You scare people, they will dump their dogs or their cats, dogs more. It's more about encouraging, you know, farmers who have dogs to protect their land or, you know, just they, they, they're sort of outside uh, dogs that they keep, encouraging them, saying, hey, we will give you a discount if you get these dogs spayed and neutered and vaccinated and you keep feeding them. Rather than saying, you know, we're going to come over and fine you for the five dogs you have on your land, then they would just drive those dogs to either a government shelter or up in the mountains and put them somewhere else because they don't want to get the fine. So encouraging the the community schools, Um, there's a lot of universities now that have, you know, um, campus dogs, encourage that, you know, give them subsidies to help them keep those uh, campus dogs healthy, uh, spayed and neutered. The same with um, farms, uh, communities, if there's communities and they have stray dogs in the area, encourage them to keep those community dogs but keep them healthy and spayed and neutered. And not to let any of us off the hook, uh, for the general public, uh, Lisa says there really are two big things that she wants us to keep in mind. Everybody needs to adopt and spay and neuter. That's the, the, the two main things that can help decrease the population, the stray population in Taiwan. More and more people need to know that, you know, an adopted dog doesn't mean a problem dog. It doesn't mean a it's going to be more problems than a bought dog. Actually, a bought dog could actually give you more trouble, especially monetary, because they don't control the breeding in Taiwan. All right. Once again, that was Lisa Milne. Uh, Brian, I think you had something to say. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an issue that's been, you know, forefronted by a lot of social movements. I mean, you know, some of the people that participate in other activism are also active in animal rights activism. Um, you know, you saw this in mobilizations around, you know, high-profile cases of pet kill- uh, animal killings, such as, you know, the death of a big orange cat that lived on um, in the Tai-Dai area. Um, also, just the documentary 12 Days was influential in this campaign, you know, against euthanasia. That was something that many people were discussing. Um, the question is, though, you know, I think a lot of it is is that in Taiwanese society, you do have this practice of just releasing animals out there. Um, people, you know, sometimes just have the tendency to release animals that they can't take care of as expecting them just to kind of survive out there. It's a Buddhist practice, I think. Uh, that that is also, there's also a Buddhist practice of, you know, releasing animals as kind of a sign of compassion, and that, that contributes to this problem. So, I mean, I think it's structural, as with, you know, a lot of a lot of issues. And so... I mean, you know, one attempt to solve one problem has to be backed up by larger, more sweeping, comprehensive reforms. And that might, you know, target social practices. So we'll see how to get there. Mm. All right. So going into 2017 with a lot of uncertainty on this particular policy and honestly, a lot of fears on the parts of uh, animal welfare advocates. All right. Moving on. And of course, we can't leave out the infamous call between Tsai Ing-wen and the United States new president-elect, Michael. We're talking here about the call in all caps. Well, that was certainly a shocker for many. It was the first time since the the rupture in U.S.-Taiwan diplomatic relations in 1979 that uh, the president of Taiwan has been in direct contact with the president-elect of the United States. So from the perspective of Taiwan's tilt toward the United States, this was a real positive move. Uh, Taiwan is very interested in more high-level exchanges with the United States. The risk for Taiwan is that so much is unknown about the Donald Trump administration and what he will actually do in Asia. The concern for many is that to Donald Trump, Taiwan is just a bargaining chip. He's put this bargaining chip into play with China And some deal may be reached with China over other issues. I would look particularly at the Korean Peninsula, also possibly trade. And in some kind of grand bargain between China and the United States, Taiwan could come out at the short end of the stick. So it's uh, hard to know what the significance of the call is. Will Taiwan have closer relations with the United States during the Donald Trump administration? I guess we'll find out in 2017. Guess we'll find out. Reassuring words there from Michael. Um, now, uh, one way to look at this is a lot of, uh, well, a lot of our commentators have pointed out the fact that this call does seem to have its genesis in some of the advisors for Donald Trump, uh, a lot of whom have uh, fairly deep ties to Taiwan. Uh, and I think that in a way they kind of fall into two different categories, these advisors. Uh, on the one category, it would be folks that 
have visited Taiwan, like Taiwan, just for the sake of Taiwan, uh, and the the ties are really directly with Taiwan. There's another category that is more they like Taiwan because they're hawkish on China, and so in that case, Taiwan is sort of peripheral to their real concern, which is getting tough on China.、Uh, Ross, I'm curious,、uh, do you have any sense for which way this is going to break when the Trump、uh, administration actually takes power? Well, certainly there will be closer U.S.-Taiwan relations in the Trump administration. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a if. I think that's a definite. The manifestation of that will probably be things like、uh, higher level visits by Taiwan officials to Washington D.C. and higher level visits by U.S. officials to Taipei. Increased military sales will probably be something that's offered, and then it'll be up to Taiwan to、uh, provide the budget, which has been a problem with some of the past offers of weapon sales by the U.S. under several U.S. Presidents of both political parties.、Uh, some people want to pursue a free trade agreement. I think that'll be a little more difficult,、uh, largely due to domestic reasons here in Taiwan. But yes, there will be definitely there will definitely be closer relations, regardless of who has Trump's ear, whether it's people who want to do these things for Taiwan because they genuinely care about Taiwan or because they just want to annoy China.、Uh, and and it remains to be seen how China will manifest its reactions to、uh, closer U.S.-Taiwan relations. But it is a definite; it's going to happen.、Mm. All right,、uh, Brian, closing thoughts on this one. Yeah, I mean, actually, I do take the view that Trump, with Trump, you cannot really tell. I think that this is almost kind of the out- logical outcome of Taiwan's reliance on the U.S. or over-reliance in the sense that the U.S. is seen as the sole security guarantor for Taiwan, even when the U.S. is happy to, you know, keep Taiwan in a limbo of strategic ambiguity for so many years. And, you know, Trump takes this to a lot of conclusion with the fact that we have no idea what he's going to do. You know, during campaign election, he said he would withdraw bases from South Korea and Japan as part of, you know, generally protectionist rhetoric. But then, you know, after talking with、uh, Park Geun-hye on telephone. And meeting with Shin Jae-op in person, he kind of flipped around on this. They're best friends now. They exchange golf now, clubs. Now, now, yeah, now they're now they're buddies.、Um, so with Trump, it's it's really hard to judge. I mean, the question of the Trump presidency in America or outside of it is whether Trump will accommodate to the institutions once he is the president. But you know, as as I think the 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 tweets themselves that he sent out about his phone call at Tsai Ing-wen show that Trump is unpredictable and he can just has a direct hotline to the world because he was a, a he's a figure who has his own kind of media network behind him in a way that previous American. Presence did not really have. He just go on Twitter and just start tweeting about whatever you know, tweets at Xi Jinping or tweets about Taiwan or like. So I, I have no idea, and you know that's that's the really frightening thing I think. Well, if there's a, a risk of over reliance on the U.S. and we've already talked about、uh, the risks of over reliance on China, especially economically, you know, that that tells us that、uh, whether it's economics or national defense, there's a lot Taiwan can do on its own. And this is something that President Tsai can definitely take leadership on with with good policies. All right, so this is just another one where we're going to have to leave it to the fates and leave it to 2017 to tell us what is going to happen here. Unpredictable is perhaps the、uh, the word of the year. Perhaps last up, the last topic that we're going to take on is another one that I submitted.、Uh, not exactly the biggest story of the year, but something that could not have a bigger impact on us all. Really, really directly impacting all of us, I would say. The Environmental Protection Administration has launched a campaign to encourage residents to flush their toilet paper rather than chucking them in those handy-dandy bins that you find in so many bathrooms around Taiwan. You also find、uh, quite often signs that tell you not to flush it, discouraging flushing. That's actually been government policy for a number of years: is to discourage flushing in most locations. Now the EPA is coming out and saying, "Nay, nay, nay." Flush away. Feel free to flush. Run free. Flush free. And okay, it's 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 great. It's great news.、Um, the bins are rather unsightly and stinky and awful and a little embarrassing.、Uh, but you know, after you report the headline, you kind of have to ask, what exactly has changed here? Why why was it not okay to flush yesterday, and all of a sudden it becomes okay to flush today? Well, it turns out there were some actually. Fairly good reasons why those rules were in place, why we were being discouraged from flushing, and those reasons have not gone away. Apparently, I spoke with Dr. Jason Nee, who is an assistant professor of City University of Hong Kong with expertise in urban planning.、Uh, urban planning, it turns out,、uh, plays a significant role here. What he explained to me、uh, was that this issue basically all comes down to Taiwan's sewage system. I、uh, and the water pressure that you can find at various places in that system. Uh, and basically, and also the linkages within that system also turned out to be very important. He said,、uh, for most modern houses, nothing to worry about. You got good pressure, 
you're connected to a sewage treatment system. It's all handled. It's going to go where it needs to go. But he told me Taiwan has a lot of old buildings, like really old buildings, older, older than you would think, and those buildings just don't quite work the same way. Some of the building is even built up, you know, in during the Japanese occupation period. So in that time, in uh, that type of building, they don't really connect it to the main sewage system. So their own pipeline is usually very um, thin and uh, it's not it's fragile. So and also it's very old. So if you dump all the you know the toilet paper in there, it, you know you're gonna damage or uh, stock the uh, their own system. So those are the ones that uh, Jason is saying that we need to worry about right there. You could face clogging. You could face untreated toilet paper going willy-nilly all around. Uh, Those are the sorts of concerns that he raises. And also he told me that he's basically, he's not very impressed by the move that the EPA made. Uh, Basically what he was telling me is that he thinks that uh, their announcement is more about politics than real improvements to Taiwan's infrastructure. You know, technically it's not feasible for all the building to just flush in. That's the truth. Uh, I think it's either you or somebody else tell me, you know, when the DPP government comes in, you know, they, they try to change, make a change of, you know, almost everything. So this is just one little kind of change. They try to make people, you know, feeling like there's a new kind of government, a new things. You know, I think this is more about like a political show or kind of uh, this type of thing. And uh, just to give some useful information to our listeners out there, if uh, you want to know whether or not your building is on the grid or not, whether you should be flushing or not, you can check on your local government's Public Works website. They have those kinds of records all up that they can tell you to flush or not to flush. Uh, uh, Keith, is that is that the same website where you can check the liquefaction of the land where your building is located? That would be convenient, wouldn't it? I, and I wonder if there's any uh, connection between liquefaction of land and whether or not you're flushing toilet paper. Yeah, especially if you had a curry the day before. That would cause some liquefaction, unfortunately. Uh, was that at the restaurants you were referring to earlier? <laughs> oh, dear. All right, we're already getting into the poop humor. Last uh, last point that I'm going to make before I turn it over to you guys. It actually does look like uh, this is not that difficult of an issue to solve. You don't have to go tearing down buildings or anything. It's really just about changing pipes and making sure that the pipes link up in the way that they're supposed to. And as Jason pointed out to me, Taipei City is planning some renewals, and probably this issue will be among the issues that they uh, address. So, uh, tossing it over to you guys. Uh, Ross, did you did you uh, heave a sigh of relief when uh, the news came from the EPA? Yeah, it, it, this went down very well. Um, oh! But uh, we were talking earlier in the program about things like Pokemon Go and Uber. Clearly, this is a, a great business opportunity for a, an app designer in Taiwan to design an app that could tell you uh, whether or not to flush, you know, whether or not the building you're in and the toilet paper composition is conducive to I didn't flushing. even want to get into toilet paper composition. That's well, a whole well, that other... Is, that is a very uh, specialized area, but uh, it, is, it is a relevant part because to this they, discussion. When the EPA came out with this policy that everyone should flush mm-hmm. instead of putting them in bins, they said, nowadays, modern toilet paper is designed to be fully biodegradable and it shouldn't block up your U-bend. Just, just to clarify, I put that question to Jason and he said... If you're in one of these houses, even if you do have the more modern toilet paper, you still have to worry about this. I think his specific words were, uh, in theory, it should work, but usage may vary. People have different behavior of using the toilet paper. So if you dump a lot of things, and um, in my and in my house, still have some kind of problem. Got to have a plunger and a big pair of rubber gloves next to the toilet, standing by. Well, Could maybe get a little boggy. Well, Gavin, maybe you should just invest in in a more modern toilet for your home. No, but my toilet's nice. It's just a hole in the ground, isn't it? It's convenient. See, this is an educational show. We're learning uh, more than we even wanted to. And I, I use lime. <laughs> what? Just dump in the lime? <laughs> just dump in the lime after you've had it, and there you go. It just dissolves it, and then you get it the next day, didn't you? That is a time-honored sewage system. Doesn't need any updating. Uh, Brian, well, you, well I'm, I'm sure you saw this news come around. Yeah. Do you flush, I, Brian? Uh, actually, I don't. I, oh. just, I, just, I just leave it there. <laughs> um... Well, you know, you just going, leave it to your local your your local garbage truck man to deal with that's right. your various business. <laughs> yeah, um, on the streets. Yeah, um, yeah. Now would be a great idea. You know, it's a way to raise Tom's profile. You know, Taiwan area has known for its its toilet bowl restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but you know, a lot of infrastructure in Taiwan is very old, and you know, there's the question of what to do about it. And a lot of stuff is just you know, homeowners oftentimes don't know like what the condition of you know the infrastructure of their home is, and that's kind of a problem.、Um, so we'll see. I mean, you know, this has not been an issue I've been keeping track of. But, you know, government, the government, you know, wanting to be the party that you know changed the way. People flush toilets. That's that's maybe the DPP in microcosm, you know, promising change or wanting to change. But wow, you know, <laughs> never a more damning appraisal. But you know, but but then you know, maybe doing things for the sake of appearances only. So I don't know. We'll see. You know, we 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 joke, but honestly, even if let's say Winston Churchill, if somewhere on his epitaph it read, "He let us flush," you know, I think he would be proud of that. That's, that's I think anyone would、history. be proud of it. Yeah,、uh, Michael, is this a story that you've been following with some interest? <clears throat> It's incredible that an issue like this could be politicized.、Uh, it's also kind of surprising that the Tsai administration would be taking this up because I think most of the electorate had no idea that the Tsai administration was going to be trying to change Taiwan's toilet habits. I'm sure they thought they were electing them to do something else. <laughs> I can only share some anecdotal stories,、um, which is that in the office where I work, the day. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Go on, go on. We 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 trust that he'll use discretion. In in the office where I work, the day after this news came out, our office manager sent out a desperate email imploring us to ignore what the government said and whatever we do, make sure that we don't flush our toilet paper. See, there you go. And the same reaction came in the thirty-year-old building I live in in Taipei. One of the neighbors posted a sign saying that no matter what the government says, don't flush. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message from a lot of worried residents.、Uh, so there's some grassroots resistance. There's、this. some guy. We found another issue, which has sparked some grassroots resistance. Well, this、uh, maybe、uh, big government isn't coming into our bedroom, but it is coming into our bathroom.、Uh, so something we should all be worried about.、Uh, and Gavin,、uh, maybe we can't flush the toilet paper, but we can now flush away 2016. Yeah, we can. I'm going to go in there and shove a whole big lump of toilet paper down my toilet to see if it flushes. See how it goes. Yeah, that's yeah. one way to test it. And if it does, I'm going to ring Ross and he can come round with his rubber gloves and plunger. Woo! All right, I think that that is a, a great cue that、uh, we've run out of steam and、uh, should we? Well, we've hit the bottom of the barrel.、Uh, I, it would be fair to say. So we're we're just going to wrap things up right there on this show and on 2016. But Taiwan this week will still be around next year as well. So you can join us again next time. Of course, Taiwan this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, right about 8:15 in the p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes, along with a couple of other places. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by the very,、uh, very relaxed. Very relieved, Gavin Phipps. Yeah, I'm going to go and have a little bit of a wipe in, a little bit of a flushy now. Thanks a lot, Keith. I'll see you next year. You're welcome to all of our listeners for that image. I、uh, also joined by Michael Fahey. Thanks, Keith. It was a pleasure.、Uh, less informative sign off, but I think that's for the best. Also joined by Brian Hugh.、Uh, thanks for having me, and I'll be looking for 2017. <laughs> Absolutely. And Ross Feingold, thank you. Thank you, and happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.